You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Thanks, Christine. Morning, everyone. Great to see you all here. I'm Dave, if I haven't met you before. I'm Dave, if I have. Um, but um, <clears throat> it's great to be able to spend some time with you now and just work through this passage together. Well, when I was a teenager, um, I used to love going surfing. On one particular surf trip, me and some friends, we went down to Middleton, which is a, a beach near Victor Harbour. Um, but I remember as we approached the car park, um, the waves, they looked a bit bigger than usual. I wasn't really that experienced at the time. Uh, but I didn't want to look like a chicken in front of my other friends who were a bit better than me. So, uh, so you know, we got to the car park. I grabbed my board, paddled out into the water. But these waves, they were pretty, they were pretty relentless. And pretty soon, I found myself getting exhausted and then this one wave came, hit me off my board, uh, my leggy snapped, and the board went back into the bay. I said, so there I was in the middle of this ocean, um, waves hitting me. I wasn't a great swimmer at the time. And pretty soon, um, I was struggling to keep my head above water. Panic was starting to sink in. Now I hear this casual voice, Davo, where's your board? I turned around and there's Will in the distance. I, I don't think he'd quite picked up on how I was feeling at the time, a bit apprehensive. Um, but after a bit of coercing and uh, me gasping for air, he eventually realised, came across on his bodyboard. Uh, he grabbed me, put me on the bodyboard and took me to shore. 
As I sat on that beach uh, with the warm sand, I just remember feeling so thankful uh, to be rescued and so keen to stay on that beach. We'll come back to this in a bit. Uh, Today we're continuing on in a series in Titus. This is a letter written by a guy named Paul uh, to Titus, who's kind of like his apprentice. Uh, It's in the Bible. Um, Paul and Titus, um, they've gone on this mission trip to this Greek island called Crete uh, to spread the good news about Jesus and establish healthy churches. Paul's now left his apprentice there in Crete to continue with this work. And so he's writing this letter uh, as a way to encourage Titus in this task. And Paul's confident uh, that um, these Cretans, they'll continue to grow in the gospel, they'll continue to grow in Jesus, not because um, of their own abilities, they've got some character flaws as we saw last week, uh, but because he, he knows the power of the gospel they're trusting in. That's why I've titled this series, The Gospel-Powered Life. Well, uh, coming to our passage today, chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says this to Titus. You, however, you must teach what's appropriate to sound doctrine. Paul here, he's contrasting Titus to the false teachers we saw last week. And he's saying that unlike these teachers, a Titus needs to be someone who teaches the Cretans how to live in a way that is a consistent with Jesus' teaching in a way that accords with that. Last week, uh, Titus taught them what it looked like in the church. Uh, and this week, uh, he's going to be speaking into the Cretans' personal lives, and ours too. That brings us uh, to our one and only point for the day, and that is that our personal lives, uh, they need to be consistent with the gospel. Uh, we're going to explore this point from three different questions. The why, the what, and the how. Uh, the why being, why, why do our lives need to be consistent with the gospel? Uh, what does this look like in practice? And how are we actually going to do this? All right, so to the, um, to the why question, um, we've got three reasons. There's plenty of reasons, but three that jump out from Titus. The first is because truth leads to godliness. Last week we saw godliness... It's a sign of God's gospel transforming your life. And so we want to see signs of this in our personal lives. The second reason, it's what we've been redeemed for. This is something we're going to come to a bit later on. And the third reason we see today is because it gives credibility to the gospel. Twice in our passage today, um, Paul articulates the connection between behavior, our behavior, and then how the gospel is perceived by others. For instance, uh, in verse 5, he's just been giving some instructions to younger women, and he says to do this so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly then in verse 10, uh, he encourages slaves to be trustworthy, uh, and the reason for this is so that in every way, In every way, they'll make the teaching of God our Saviour attractive. Imagine for a moment uh, a beautiful diamond ring. Um, What is it that makes this diamond beautiful? Well, of course, it's the diamond, right? Um, But equally as important uh, is the setting the diamond's on. Because this setting, it can be the difference 
uh, between somebody seeing the diamond in all its beauty or it being obscured. It's the setting that helps uh, the light to be able to reflect, refract in all different kinds of directions. The gospel is, is this beautiful diamond. And Christians, they're a little bit like the setting. If, if we have ungodly behavior, um, it can actually obstruct people's ability to see this beautiful gospel. But godly behavior, it can, it can help people to see the gospel in all its beauty. As John Stott put it, our actions, they can either bring adornment uh, or discredit to the gospel. These are just a few reasons uh, why our lives need to be consistent with the gospel. So moving on to our second question, what does this actually look like in practice? Well, last week uh, we looked a little bit about how the Christian life, it's like a high-performance vehicle, and it's the gospel that's enabling that to happen. In this next section, it's kind of like the performance of the vehicle, and later we'll see the engine that drives it. Um, So the way that Paul does this, as he takes the traditional household roles, and one by one he provides instructions for them. But as we'll see, um, uh, his instructions are these principles that come out of it. They're actually mostly applicable to all of us here today. First up, we have older men. Uh, Now, older men here, they're probably, our equivalent would be end of working age, retirement, that kind of stage. And in in verse 2, Paul encourages the older men to be sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. In other words, uh, Paul wants these older men in Crete to demonstrate maturity by trusting in Jesus, serving others in love, and waiting patiently for the fulfillment of their Christian hope. Let's just pick up on this idea of serving others in love. Uh, We've got a number of great examples here from some of the older men here. Um, For instance, Ian and Daryl, you might see them if you're early enough. They're here early in the morning, setting up the chairs, making sure this hall's ready to go. And then at the end of the service today, um, if they're rostered on, they're going to be here waiting until everyone leaves, packing up the chairs, uh, making sure that this is ready for the school tomorrow. Now, They'd be forgiven for thinking, let's just leave this to some of the teenagers here, you know, with um, their young backs and all of that. But, but they don't because they want to lovingly serve us. And this is one of the ways that they do it. If you're an older man here today, how are you expressing your maturity uh, through loving service? Next up, we have older women. And verse 3, Paul instructs Titus to encourage the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Let's just pick up on the idea of slandering others. Uh, In a church like ours, where there's so many people and we do life together, uh, there's going to be times when people frustrate us uh, and even times where people will hurt us. What are we doing in those times? How are we responding? Um, Are we responding by looking for opportunities to vent? Maybe when we get home, we can vent to our kids and our family. Um, Or are we actually looking at ways we can lovingly uh, talk about those other people, even when it's hard? These are the things we want for everyone in our church. 
But here in verse 4, we see that Paul particularly wants older women to be living this way because then they can urge the younger women. Paul wants the, the older women here to be living lives that are so consistent with the gospel so that they can be teaching and modeling this uh, to the younger women in the church. This week, I've been asking around just to um, hear stories, different ways that this is happening with us. And encouragingly, uh, it is in a lot of ways. Um, one younger woman, she shared about how much she really valued having an older woman, just slightly older, but somebody older who invested in her life. She appreciated how this, this woman, she actually opened up her life. Uh, she was willing to do life with her, let her um, see into her own personal experiences and how God's working in her life. Uh, but also, uh, this mentor, she'd ask her questions, you know, she'd ask how she's going, how church life is, and she'd keep encouraging her uh, to keep taking those steps in the faith. Now, in some ways... Uh, these, these things, they feel like everyday things, but they can have such a profound impact. So if you're an older woman here today, I just want to extend uh, the challenge just to prayerfully consider, is there somebody um, younger than you who you might be able to invest in? And if you're a younger woman today, why not take the initiative? Why not just invite somebody to speak into your life? It could be as simple as having a cup of coffee regularly. Moving on then to younger women, Paul here, uh, he's particularly focusing on younger women uh, who are married, and that's just a reflection of the culture at the time. Um, but I hope if you're not married, uh, you'll see that a number of these principles, they still apply. Just a quick side note on this. In verse 5, I don't know if you heard it the first time, uh, Paul encourages the younger women to be busy at home. Uh, that kind of rubs against our culture, being busy at home. Who is Paul to say that to us? Um, I don't think Paul's making a statement that women shouldn't be in the workforce. Uh, in fact, at the time, uh, a number of these women were running the household businesses, keeping it going. But I think uh, Paul is saying that uh, he wants the young women to be prioritising their families, uh, to be prioritizing the well-being of their kids and their husband and uh, their household. And with this in mind, in verse 4, Paul encourages the younger women uh, to love their husbands and children. Ah, oh, it's not there. To love your husbands and children. And from what I've seen, uh, being a wife and a mom, it's, it's no easy task. Uh, my wife, Maddie, she likes to listen to Colin Buchanan uh, with her daughter, Daisy, and in one of his songs, he has these lyrics. Uh, Press on mums, in all the chaos, look to Jesus through the tears. Press on mums, God will guide you through those precious tender years. These are precious tender years, or so Colin says. Um, but when you're in the thick of it, it can be really, really hard. Life-sucking, uh, even draining uh, I've heard it said that a number of young mums in these kind of situations, they can feel like uh, they've lost their self-identity. Uh, and yet we press on as parents, um, not because 
it's fulfilling or rewarding, although it might be. Not because our, our kids are little angels. My kid is, but yours might not be. Um, we press on because it pleases God. All right, Paul then moves to younger men. We're getting through these. Um, and in verse 6, he says to younger men, strap yourselves in, it's a long list. Encourage the young men to be self-controlled. That's it. That's the list. I think I might claim this category. I don't quite know. I think I'm a younger man, but um, actually, it's not quite it. Uh, Titus is actually setting them an example for all of life, and he expects them to follow this example. But I take it here, uh, Paul's mentioning self-control for younger men because that's something that they particularly struggle with. And also, it's essential uh, to living the Christian life. Lacking self-control, it can lead to any number of issues. It can lead to losing, losing your temper, using crude language, harboring selfish ambition, being arrogant or thinking you know best. Uh, it can lead to sexual immorality, um, viewing porn or sexual relationships outside of marriage. If you're a younger man here today, how are you going with self-control? If you're struggling, you could consider asking someone you trust for help. Uh, For instance, uh, I know a number of friends in the past, they've used this program uh, called Covenant Eyes. Basically, it's a way that you can help your friends to keep you accountable. Uh, so if you're going online and something looks a bit suspect, the program will send an, an email to your friend and they can then say, hey, what's going on? Why are you looking at this? If you're struggling with an area of self-control, uh, keep wrestling with it. Keep pressing on. And also take heart. Because Paul's confident that through the gospel, uh, you can actually live a self-controlled life. This brings us to our last group, slaves. Seems a bit strange in this context where we don't have slaves. Um, something cheeky from the frontier. I don't know what he said. Mums. Oh, no comment. That was Noel if you want to follow him up later. Uh, so slavery back here was a little different to the slavery we would have had in America 200 years ago. Often these slaves were employed in a number of domestic tasks, uh, and some even had opportunities uh, for freedom after a certain number of years. But it was still a very bad thing. Uh, It still involved somebody owning another person. And no doubt often these people would abuse those rights. And so it raises the question, why isn't Paul here actually saying, no, slavery is bad, let's abolish it? In other places, uh, Paul does actually talk about this. Uh, for instance, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he talks about how um, slavery, it's so out of step with God's plan for this world and uh, with the gospel. However, what we're seeing here is that there's a higher priority than even social rights. And that priority is the life-changing gospel of Jesus. And so Paul's speaking here to the slaves in this horrible situation and he's saying, how can you actually adorn the gospel? How can you be faithful to Jesus in this so that you can make this gospel attractive to others? 
It's a pretty confronting kind of challenge for all of us, isn't it? When we're, when we're faced with these situations in our lives, and maybe it's at work or at home, what's our reaction to that situation? How, how are we, uh, as individuals and as a church, how are we going to respond at, in a way that's going to adorn the gospel to others? All right, that's a bit of a whirlwind ride. Are you still with me? No response. I'm going to keep going anyway. So <laughs> uh, we've seen that the gospel, it's got a number of implications for our personal lives. And in hearing all of this, uh, I think it can be a bit overwhelming. Where do you start? Um, but be assured, uh, we're not alone in this task. And so on to our final question. How can our personal lives be consistent with the gospel. Here's where we get to pop the hood uh, and actually explore the gospel engine that's at work and see a couple of ways that it does this. Firstly, uh, it does this through God's saving grace. In verse 11, we hear these words. For the grace of God has appeared, which offers salvation to all people. Grace here, it means undeserved or unmerited favour. And Paul's claiming that there was a particular moment in history where God's grace for us, it became visible. And that moment was when Jesus came into this world. What's more, we see that Jesus brought with him salvation. That's a bit of an interesting idea, salvation, because it implies... Um, that we're actually rescued from some sort of danger or problem. They've actually needed rescuing. The reality is we haven't treated God the way we should. We've decided we're going to give him the cold shoulder and instead do life the way that we want to do it. And this is a horrible thing to do to your creator. And so the natural consequence is for God to say, if you don't want me, you can have that for eternity. But when Jesus entered this world, God revealed his grace. Because Jesus, the perfect son of God, he willingly gave his life up on a cross, taking the punishment that we deserve for our rejection of God. And what's more, uh, Jesus, he didn't stay in the grave. He rose to new life, conquering death, conquering sin. And so now by trusting uh, in Jesus and what he's done, we can be brought back into a right relationship with God for all eternity. If you're someone who follows Jesus, uh, it's this reality that motivates us to keep living for him. Uh, for instance, in verse 14, we hear that Jesus, he gave himself up for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what's good. Coming back to my opening story, I imagine Will's pulled me up onto his board, I grab a couple of breaths, I say, thanks Will, and then I hop back into the water, keep wrestling with the waves. It'd be crazy, right? 
Instead, after being pulled up on that board, all I wanted to do was go back to the shore and stay there. Looking back at the cross for us, it motivates us. It motivates us to stay away from our old life and also to delight in this restored relationship that we have with God, being eager to please Him in everything. If you're somebody here who's still exploring Jesus today, that's a great thing, and thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Please have a look with me again at verse 11. Um, We hear, It's the grace that has appeared, which offers salvation to all people. If you're exploring who Jesus is, please know God's already made a way for you to join his family. Through Jesus, he's extended that hand of reconciliation. The question is, will you take hold of it? If you do want to look further into Jesus, uh, I'd love to talk with you about that. Um, there's, there's a prayer corner you could talk with them, or maybe if you came with a friend, um, you might want to talk to them after the service today. Well, if you've been a Christian for more than a few moments, you'd know that uh, it's not always easy to live consistent with the gospel. But lucky for us, it's not only God's grace uh, that saves us and motivates us, uh, but it's the same grace that teaches us. And we see that in verse 12. So the second thing that will enable us to live for God, well, it's God's teaching grace. When I was younger, I used to play a lot of squash. Uh, I used to love it. And um, one of the ways I improved my game was by getting a private coach. One of the best things this coach did, he didn't just explain to me uh, how, to, how to play better squash. He actually showed me as well. well I think um, God's grace is a little bit like my squash coach. Hopefully not exactly. He wasn't perfect. <laughs> as we learn about God's grace from his word... And see, it's transforming work uh, in this world and in our lives. It trains us for a gospel-powered life. In verse 12, uh, we get a bit of an insight into this teaching curriculum for grace. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. God's grace, it teaches us to say no and to say yes. Uh, To say no to our old life, which is full of ungodliness, and to say yes to this new life, uh, full of self-control and godliness. Now, we've had a bit of a look at the hood. I popped the hood and we've seen the engine of the gospel that drives everything. Let's look again at some of those instructions Paul gave from before. If you're an older woman, uh, or anyone for that matter, and you're tempted to slander somebody, come back to grace and let it teach you. Remember, um, God, he had every right to be angry with us. He had every right to, every right to write us off. Um, but he didn't. He was patient. And he found a way um, to bring reconciliation to that relationship. If you're an older man and um, maybe you feel like your serving days are over, 
Come back to grace and let it teach you. Remember Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the one who made this entire universe. He had every right to not serve. And yet, it's this same Jesus who washed the feet of his disciples. And we see his ultimate act of loving service and laying his life on the cross. If you're a younger woman and you just have a young, crazy family and you want to love your husband and kids, but it's hard work, come back to grace and let it teach you. Remember the incredible love God has for you. While you're still his enemy, he sent his only son, Jesus, into this world to die for you. And if you're a younger man and you're struggling to control your urges, come back to grace and let it teach you. As you hear from God's word, as you share struggles with people you trust, remember that Jesus, he's just saved you from that dangerous surf and he's brought you back onto the shore. Don't go and start playing with those waves again. He's redeemed you for something better. Well, for all of us, if you're in a V8 Commodore, you drop the clutch, you hit the accelerator, what's going to happen? The wheels, they might spin for a bit. You'll see some smoke come up. But eventually, you're going to rush forward. It's inevitable. It's exhilarating. Life powered by the gospel, it's a bit like that. We drop the clutch when we put our faith in Jesus. We hit the accelerator as we deepen our knowledge of the gospel. And it's, it's inevitable. It's exhilarating. Our lives are changed forever. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Dear God, thank you for your grace which has appeared, which offers salvation to all people. Thank you for this redeemed life uh, which we have in Jesus' name that we can now be a people who adorn the gospel of Jesus. We ask that through your grace, you'll continue to teach us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we await the appearing of our blessed hope when Jesus returns. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.